You are listening to the Galena Missions Podcast, the preaching ministry of Galena Bible Church. Follow along as we study God's Word together. You can go ahead and grab your Bible and join me in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. The most profound um, statement ever stated about the institution of marriage in cinematic form goes something like this. Mowage. Mowage is what brings us together today. Mowage is that blessed arrangement, a dream within a dream. And it's profound in its uh, silliness uh, because not only is the statement true, the context in which it is said is to a woman who does not love the man that she's fixing to marry and wants to marry a pirate, and the man who is planning on killing the woman later that evening. Right. So this is, of course, from The Princess Bride, if you are not familiar with this uh, cinematic masterpiece. Uh, <laughs> And the, the reality of it is that juxtaposition of the silliness of these lofty and beautiful words about marriage uh, said by uh, a, uh, a priest to two individuals that want absolutely nothing to do with anything that he's actually talking about with each other, I think is a uh, fitting symbol for the dynamic of marriage that is talked about in the world today. We are doing a series right now um, where and we do this every year, touching on a couple of uh, points, I guess, um, subjects, if you will, that are um, significant enough that we feel like we shouldn't just wait for them to show up when we're going through a uh, teaching through the book of the Bible or something like that. Um, that we want to have those regularly injected within our body uh, to help recenter us and refocus us on what it is that Scripture teaches about those subjects. Last week we took a look at the concept of sanctity of life, uh, and I believe that that, uh, that concept of sanctity of life, what does it mean for us? Uh, we answered the question, what, uh, when does a human find worth? Uh, and that issue, that question, I think plays into this week and next week as well. Uh, next week we'll be looking at uh, ethnicity and the gospel. And the reason I emphasize that is that the concept of sanctity of life, of when is a human being a human being, when do they have worth, uh, not just based on what society says, but based upon God saying uh, so, plays into the dynamic of marriage because one of the things I do in uh, when I do a, a wedding service is I add a little you know dialogue between a husband and wife in the midst of that and I will have them simultaneously look at each other and before the congregation they will say to each other you are not my enemy and the reason I have them do that is anybody that has been married for longer than a week knows that there comes a moment where you look at the other individual and you don't just think it, you believe they are my enemy. 
And there is a loss of sanctity of of life, a dehumanizing that takes place within that. And I believe that that is ultimately the roots of racism. It is a, uh, which we'll look at next week, the dynamic of looking at another human being and saying, I don't really believe that you are a human being of the same worth as me. Marriage seems wonderful until it gets sideswiped by culture. Uh, we have this fairy tale picture of marriages, thanks to um, movies like The Princess Bride and uh, all kind of other, you know, uh, movies and then news things. You know, the uh, uh, when the royals get married in England, there's all kind of you know fanfare, and we watch and oogle and awe over all of that. But marriage gets sideswiped in all kind of other ways as well. It gets sideswiped by politics when the issue of marriage becomes a political battleground. Uh, by uh, it gets sideswiped when we learn of the divorce of friends on social media, which has become a, a fairly common experience for me. And it, a marriage also, the beauty of marriage and the wonderfulness of marriage uh, gets sideswiped when divorce comes into our own story, either by the divorce of parents or guardians, close family members or even within our own personal marriages. So how are we to rightly see marriage uh, the way that the world, or when the world can't even agree on what marriage actually is? What is it? It's, it's interesting to me that when we talk about sanctity of life, uh, we, we're talking about life, and the disagreement is, when is it life? Because... If it's not life, it's not murder. If it is life, it is murder, right? That's a pretty simple juxtaposition that we see there, and there's a wrestling of that. And the issue of marriage comes into that same context when we just say, well, what, what is it? Is it just a more costly form of dating? Is it just some kind of a legal you know, ramification, like it just makes it more complicated for us to break up? Is that, is that what it is? Uh, is it just a system that society has created so that we can you know, have equitable distribution of funds upon the termination of this contractual agreement? What exactly is it? Well, like all things as Christians, we are called to not look to our own experience, not look to the culture around us, not even look to the teaching that we've been given by our predominant culture, but we are to look to Christ as Christians. Take a look with me in Matthew chapter 19. We're going to be doing a little bit of deep dive into some historical stuff. Sometimes when we read Scripture, we can just read Scripture uh, and just glean, I think, most of what God wants to teach us out of it just in a plain reading. I think there's sometimes where there is a historical context that helps shape some of the way that we understand what it is that he's saying in this. The, the Gospel of Matthew is written in a very unique structure. Um, Matthew does... Uh, uh, he does action for several chapters. He talks about what Jesus does. And then he takes a break and he has long sections of Jesus' teaching and then followed it up by doing. And so uh, chapter 18 concludes the long passage of Jesus' teaching and then it begins to move into story or action of what Jesus is doing. And it says in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 1, when Jesus had finished these words, He departed from Galilee and He came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed Him. 
and He healed them there. Jesus, of course, this is, if you notice where this is in Matthew, this is getting close to the end of Matthew, meaning this is getting close to the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. The cross is not far away in this. Jesus is fairly well known amongst all of, uh, all of the provinces of Israel at this point in time. Uh, word of Him has spread far and wide. Uh, and it has spread, not necessarily um, uh, because people genuinely believed Him to be the Messiah, but they genuinely did get a kick out of the things that He was saying because they were so controversial, they were so countercultural. Uh, oftentimes they were being said against the, the political elite, the religious elite, uh, in those kind of ways. And then beyond that, there were all these rumors that Jesus was healing people. That people that had uh, gross deformities, significant illnesses, um, had never seen in their entire lives. All these kind of crazy things were coming to Jesus and leaving healed. And so people were following Him. And it's so it is in this, that this large crowd follows Him even as He's traveling. They're bringing Him their sick and He's distinctly performing miracles. He is healing them there. Now I try to put myself in the context of that day and just imagine what it would be like to see Jesus gathered with a throng and not like the, the prosperity gospel guys that you see you know, mocked on TV and stuff that are you know, slamming people in the forehead and they're falling out and shaking on the ground and then they're saying, oh yeah, they've been cured of Parkinson's or whatever and there's, you know, there's absolutely no evidence of this. Right? But these are, these are uh, individuals who are literally coming with leprosy. They've got stuff falling off of them and they walk away completely healed. Right? Uh, these, these are people that very obviously have either deformities of their eyes or have significant cataracts and they're walking away able to see. I mean, just incredible, dramatic things. Watching all of that. And if you've watched that and you've seen that, of course, what's the first thing that you want to talk to about Jesus? You want to talk to Him about His doctrine of marriage. right? That's, of course, what you'd want to do if you're seeing Jesus do all this stuff, right? Well, that's what the Pharisees did. In verse 3 it says, Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing Him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now, of course, this may just seem like a simple thing of curiosity uh, that you know the Jesus, that these Pharisees really are looking to him as a as a rabbi, as a as a school teacher, and that they genuinely, hey, you know, Jesus, I got this question, and 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 I want an answer to it. Right, all of us in our Christian journey, we've had those moments of questions where we just like, man, I would just love to be able to sit down with Jesus and be like, all right, here's my question. Give me an answer, right? But that's not what these guys are after. And it says very clearly that they came to with this question for a, a testing, a, a tripping up, if you will. Do the Pharisees want to talk about the obvious healing miracles that Jesus has just done? Nope. They're totally ignoring all of that. They want to test Him to trap Him. And the trap, though we don't know exactly what it is that they had in mind as they're asking this question, in the context of their day, there's basically two options of why this particular question, of all the questions they could have asked Jesus, why this one would be a very particular trap to catch Jesus in. The first was, if you remember the story of Jesus' cousin, Johann the Immerser, better known as John the Baptist, 
uh, he lost his head because why? Anybody remember? Herod had divorced his wife. Right. Yeah, he had divorced his wife, uh, just kicked her out because he wanted to marry his brother's sister. And he was the ruler of Israel. And John said, we can't have that. So he went and preached against it. And he preached from the Scriptures against it. He was like, this is not okay. And the result of that was, he was arrested and ultimately beheaded. Uh, And the issue that John had was around Herod's divorce. And again, if this question is to say, you could say, uh, teacher, is it lawful, scripturally lawful, that's not, not does, does Rome have to say with this, whatever, these are Pharisees, experts in the law, the, the Jewish law, is it Jewish law lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Because if that's the case, then yeah, sure, he can do whatever he wants to do. It doesn't matter. And ultimately, in this point, Marriage doesn't matter. And obviously, if Jesus says, well, uh, yes, he can, then he's going against his cousin John, who the people upheld as a prophet, right? Or if he says, no, a man cannot divorce his wife for any reason, then he's aligning himself with John, who was beheaded, and that's kind of what the hope of the Pharisees are for this Jesus character at this point in time. So that's one option of how this is a trap. The other one was to trap him uh, uh, as he basically put social pressure on the culture and the peoples that he was around. Because I think, again, sometimes we read the Scriptures and we, we think that things were so much different back then than they are today, socially. Right? And there were significant, I mean, obviously, huge social dis- differences between their day and our day. But one thing that I think is um, pretty uh, is significant to know is that divorce in this period of time was very, very common. Like when we think of divorce today, it involves lawyers, it involves court dates, it involves uh, people having to issue papers and all of this kind of stuff that have to be signed, and there's time periods, and there's arbitration, and there's all of this kind of stuff that's involved. That was not what was going on in their day. Literally, how divorce went was like, husband wakes up one day and says, I'm going to divorce my wife. He pulls out a piece of paper, writes down, I'm divorcing you on effectively immediately this. When she shows up to get her morning, I don't know, they didn't have coffee or what, you know, whatever, morning water, he hands her the paper. That's it. That's, that's divorce. Very easy and very common. And there's a juxtaposition that is uh, played out here that we'll describe here in a moment that is actually a political divide but a political divide that is theological in nature. In other words, uh, there's uh, within the Jews, there were two kind of positions that were predominantly held. And this would trap Jesus because however He landed on this would either put Him at odds greater with the leadership that was in place within the Jewish world, or it would put Him at odds with the people that were following Him and trying to listen to what it was that He was teaching. 
Of course, Jesus had taught on the subject of marriage uh, pretty significantly when he preached what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And he talked heavily about this as a picture of uh, what it is that God intended for us to see our relationship with Him to look like. That marriage was a type, a picture, an image, the same way that uh, the temple was intended to be a, a picture, an image of what something bigger that God was painting for them to see. And so these Pharisees just, they, they didn't want to talk to him about his healing. They didn't want to talk to him about his, uh, the power of his teaching. They wanted to try to trap him in his own words. And in verse 4, Jesus answers them and he said, uh, he answered them and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. This is one of the reasons why Jesus got in trouble. Because these were experts in the law. These were literally, I mean, these guys literally had memorized most of the Old Testament. And Jesus begins his answer to them with, Haven't you guys read? I mean, it's, it's a total cut, a total dig at them and their positions. Because the reality of it is, Jesus is saying, If you really have actually read the scriptures, not just. Uh, from an intellectual standpoint, but allowed the Scriptures to actually speak to who you are, you wouldn't be asking this question. Have you not read? It was a message to those who claimed to be the people of God. And this is the point that I want us to make as we think about the dialogue of marriage within the cultural world in which we live as Christians. How do we talk about marriage in a world that is so utterly confused. And if we ask the question to them, haven't you read? The answer is no. The world has not read what God has said. They don't have a perception of it. Their perception of marriage is based upon their experience, their upbringing, their their point of reference within the world, their point of reference within time, their political influence. All of those things have been what have influenced where they land on the subject of marriage. But Jesus in this is speaking to us who have read what God has said and are being called to embrace what God has said regardless of what the world has to say about it. Jesus begins His answer by saying God created and defines marriage. Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. Jesus quotes directly from Genesis. If we ask the question, when does the doctrine of marriage, when does the sanctity of marriage, when does God's picture of marriage, when when does God choose to reveal His will about the nature of marriage happen? At the very beginning, literally in chapter 1, God makes humanity and then He reveals marriage. For this reason shall a man leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, the two become one flesh. Male and female. 
The definition of marriage, as God puts it forward uh, from the beginning, is that it is male and female are to be born, or to be bound together, two distinct and separate individuals leaving their families of origin, their distinctiveness of uh, identity as children of their parents to be united to their spouse and become one flesh. They are to leave that behind distinctively as the most valuable thing within their world and cleave to the one whom uh, they have married. And the result is a picture of one flesh. It is actually a reversal of the actual creation itself. When God made man and formed him out of the dirt of the earth, and man saw as he named all the animals that all the animals had pairs and partners and there was no helper for him and God put him to sleep and from the rib of man... Uh, God took and formed, fashioned woman and He brought them together. That's the picture of it. That the picture of marriage is the reverse of the creation order that they were two and now have become one. Whereas when God created, He had one and He made two. And it is always this pointing back to God's original design, God's original plan. It is the story of Scripture uh, all the way throughout it that redemption is not that God's going to create something that is new, that doesn't exist. It is going to be a bringing back to a new Eden, a uh, reforming of this earth, a resetting of everything right. There is this longing that we have to go back to what it was that God originally intended all things to be. So Jesus, when He answers them this way, by just simply quoting to them uh, Genesis chapter 1, and then saying with a conclusion, so they are no longer two, but one flesh, what therefore God has joined together, man shouldn't separate. And ultimately Jesus' answer is, so your question is really, shall we undo what God has made? Their question was, can a man divorce his wife for any reason at all? And Jesus answers, uh, shall we undo what God has made? And the Pharisees, and with Jesus' answer, they think they've got Him. They think that it's like, man, He just played His cards right into where we wanted Him to do. Because they do exactly what Satan did to Jesus when he was tempted in the wilderness. Do you remember when Jesus goes away and the, the, he's, uh, Satan comes to him and he's hungry after having you know, uh, you know, wanted to, uh, you know, been fasting for 40 days. And Satan comes to him and says, see this rock, just tell it to turn into bread and you'll do that. And Jesus you know, quotes Scripture back to him. And then the second temptation, what, is, what does Satan do in the second temptation? He quotes Scripture to him. He quotes Scripture back to Jesus. That's exactly what these Pharisees do. They say, Why then, why then uh, did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? They quote back to him Scripture and they were going, Aha! Jesus is counteracting Scripture. What Jesus just said goes against what Scripture says. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 24, uh, verses 1-4. through 4. Moses gives uh, the teaching around the subject of divorce that is there. Uh, and they can go, look, see, it's Scripture. 
and you're you're preaching against scripture, you're teaching against scripture. Do you claim to go against scripture? That's ultimately what they're saying with this. And like many differing uh, differing opinions about how uh, to understand Moses' teaching had arisen, their world was pretty confused on this particular subject. Uh, And it was basically clumped into two particular groups. And if you're ever in Bible trivia and you know these names, you'll probably win. Uh, One of those is the group called the Hillel group. They were very loose about their interpretation of the laws of Moses, about the way in which they were to interpret the Old Testament Scriptures for how they applied into modern day life. The Hillel group, when it came to this subject of divorce, taught that a man could divorce his wife, according to what Moses said, for anything unpleasant. And that could be anything from, uh, I didn't like the dinner that she cooked. Uh, or I saw her looking at another man and that displeased me. And it was very loose and very flippant. It was as close today as we have uh, to what is called a no-contest divorce. Meaning when you go to get a divorce in a court of law and they say, what are the reasons for this divorce? And you just simply say, we just simply cannot get along and neither of us can test that fact. And it is free to go. That was the Hillel group, and there was a significant number of uh, members within the Sanhedrin that were adherents of that uh, and taught that as a, as a truth. And there were many people within the society that greatly appreciated that stance because it made it very simple for them to be able to say, well, I just don't like this, so we can get a divorce and it's no big deal. Then there was Shemal, or, uh, Shemal group, these are both of these, Hillel and Shemal, were two Jewish scholar teachers that uh, taught in this um, way. And uh, Shemal group believed that it was much more stringent, and they put the, the reasons for divorce on gross indecency. That it had to be something that was very indecent, um, sexually immoral in that way. And again, all of this is not actually... They're not talking about um, adultery. The the teaching on adultery in uh, the Old Testament was much more severe than that. This was things outside of the context of adultery. But there was this, this kind of war between the two of them. And all of this was based upon Moses' teaching. Scripture. Scripture said it was there. And they basically said, you have not only counteracted Scripture, but you've counteracted everything that all of Jewish people are teaching and believing at this point in time. Now again, I want us to get this perspective uh, about the culture that divorce in Jesus' day was very common. I don't think when we think of Scripture, we think that divorce was a, a common thing. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, he wrote this really thick book about uh, Jewish history, who himself was a divorced man, that half of the Sanhedrin had been divorced at the time of Jesus' life. So divorce was very, very common within the, the cultural context. And Jesus takes his shot in verse 8. When he answers them, because they said, Do you not believe Scripture? And Jesus says, He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, 
It has not been this way. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, from God's design, it has not been this way. Because of your hardness of heart. This was not God's plan. The reality of this is something that is normal within society. It was not a part of God's plan. It was not a part of God's picture. It was not a part of what God wanted there to be. Moses has concessions that come not from divine desire. In other words, this is what God wills and wants. But rather, these concessions stem from human hardness of heart. And Jesus steps in and He answers uh, by saying, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, like Moses said to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Jesus says a hard statement. Jesus permits with Moses, because he's tying himself that I say to you, Jesus permits with Moses, but with a clause. And the clause is this, whoever divorces his wife except for most of your translations will, will just translate it as immorality. Some translations translate it as adultery. They're trying to tie it to other passages of Scripture. The word that is used there is porneia. Does anybody know where we, what else we might get from the word porneia? Porn. It is the catch-all term for all sexual immorality. Everything that is outside of the picture and purview of God's ultimate design fits into that category. This is incest, this is fornication, this is pornography, this is homosexuality, this is bestiality, this is any other sexual sin that you can think of fits into that category. And Jesus says, obviously, there is a rupturing of what is going on with God's design of marriage. And so, as a result of that, it has been broken. It has come to this place of a brokenness that is there. And with Jesus saying this, divorce always involves some form of unrepentant evil. It is either on the part of the one who has engaged in sexual immorality, or it is on the part of the one pursuing divorce simply because of a hard heart. And I don't say these things as something to beat us up about. I'm saying we look to Jesus to define for us what the world can't define. This is a hard teaching. This isn't easy. It's not fun. It's not cushy. And the disciples knew that. And I love, this is why one of the reasons I love Scripture is it doesn't omit some of that fact. Jesus says this to the Pharisees. He takes his shot at them. In verse 10, the disciples said to him, if the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. He's going, 
if I can't get out for any reason, it'd be better for me not to marry at all. It's not easy. And Jesus says to them, Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. It's a pretty profound statement. Oftentimes when we speak truth into this world, we do everything we can to soften it. Right? We use terms that we want to make it culturally relevant. Or we want to make it, uh, you know, lovingly understandable. Or any of these kind of things. Because we really genuinely want the world to hear the good news of what God God teaches, the reality of this world, and we want them to embrace it. But Jesus just had a really funny way of saying, look, some of this stuff's really hard and they're not going to get it. They're not going to love it. They're not going to embrace it. And then He goes on to teach this. He says, For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. And there were eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. The sanctity of marriage is taught to us by Christ must also be coupled with something that I think has been lacked in teaching within the church. And it is the sanctity of singleness. That I think within specifically Western evangelical church worlds that we've all lived in, there's this expectation of life, right? That you're going to be a kid, and you're going to be a teenager, and then you're going to meet somebody, right? And it's going to be fireworks and Valentine's Day cards and all this kind of... And you're going to get married, and you're going to have kids, and you're going to grow old and you know, celebrate your 75th wedding anniversary and die within hours of each other, right? That's the, that's the, way, you know, that's the fairy tale, right? That's the, that's the dream. And then the churches looked at individuals that have been single and were kind of like, well, hey, you want help with the children's ministry? Right? Like, I don't know, we don't got, we don't got a vision for you. We don't, have this, you know, we don't have this dream for you. How do you fit into the reality of this? And I think that's a shame because we follow a Savior who was single his entire life. Jesus taught on the sanctity of marriage as a single person with authority and validity. The Apostle Paul also taught on marriage. We, we use Paul's teaching quite often because he, he does some pretty deep dives into the subject of marriage on a number of different places. Some interesting things about Paul. Uh, we, ha- we know some of his theological tradition where he came from and most scholars agree that the theological tradition that Paul came from one of the requirements to be one of those kind of Pharisees was that you had to be married and of course we know that Paul was it at the time that we're here so there's a, a significant uh, amount of evidence that Paul probably was a widower for his entire ministry reality of uh, who he was. Of all of the disciples, there was one, only one, that was married. And he was married when he became a disciple. That was Peter. Both Jesus and Paul 
taught a hard truth that was this. It's better to remain single if God calls you to do that for the sake of the kingdom. It's just better. Why? Because it's just simple. You don't have to worry about, you know, uh, you know, scheduling, you know, the, the prayer that we prayed for the Casey's in New Lotto. Help, help me to be able to balance uh, you know, ministry with our village with the newborn baby. You want to meet the most selfish human being on the planet? Meet a baby, right? They may be beautiful. They are incredibly selfish. You're tired? Sorry. Right? I don't care. Feed me. Right? Like that's, that's the reality of that. And if you're saying, you don't, have to, you don't have to do that. Right? You never have to ask the question of, hey, can you come do this ministry thing? Can you come serve your neighbor? Can you come stay up late talking to your neighbor uh, that's having a tough time? You never have to say, well, let me check with my spouse first. Right? You never have to do any of those things. And both Jesus and Paul taught that as a reality. Paul says, specifically around the nature of singleness, he says, but it is better to marry than to burn with lust. One of the things that we need to understand about the sanctity of marriage is that marriage itself does not make us more holy than other people. It doesn't make us more holy than single people. It doesn't make us more holy than divorced people. It doesn't make us more holy than anything of that. Marriage itself was something that was created by God as a uh, means by which, one, to shape human society, but two, to point this, paint this picture, as Paul tells us, that it is an image of Christ and the church. It is God's union, His deep and abiding love. If, if we take that to its logical conclusion where He says if, if uh, marriage of a husband and wife is like Christ and the church, and the husband and wife become one flesh, the picture is God saying, I have united with you as intimately as is possible. You are mine. There is no more beautiful picture than could be painted of marriage than to say that it is a picture of Christ and the church. But being married doesn't make us more holy than people who are not. Marriage doesn't make us more spiritual. The other thing that we need to be reminded of is the divorce is not unforgivable. That it is not uh, something that is, you know, this stain that lives upon you forever. God forgives all kinds of sin. He doesn't forgive, you know, He doesn't forgive hardness of heart. God can't forgive adultery. God can't forgive pornea. But we also need to know that while divorce is not unforgivable, it is not inconsequential. And any child of a divorced parent will tell you, no, it's very consequential. It is very scarring. It's very wounding. This is the reason why we as Christians are not called to beat people up with marriage but to cherish it and champion it, whether it's our own marriage or it's the marriages of our friends and our other church members, and to uh, encourage, strengthen, look out for, promote, and sanctify to be the best example of Christ that it could possibly be. If we hold a biblical marriage, we, like Jesus, will stand opposed to the currents of our culture. 
Even now, there are things that I've said that many of them were not me interpreting them. They were literally just me reading what Jesus said. That if you're like me, as I'm studying this and I'm writing this down and I'm going, okay, Lord, that really grates against what I like. I don't like that. I don't even necessarily want that. But I'm submitting to you. And if that's me, for somebody who deeply loves Jesus and wants to submit all of my life to that, no wonder when we say these things into the world, the world goes, you believe what? You've got to be kidding. That's so archaic. It's so unloving. It's so unmerciful. There is a greater amount of teaching on the subject of marriage and divorce within Scripture. Many of the discussions revolve around that question of what is it that permits it? And the Bible does give answers to those things. But the thing I think we need to acknowledge is what Jesus is saying is, yes, the Bible does allow certain things, but it does not necessarily bless those things. That it's God saying, this is not how it was intended to be. And I've known faithful Christians who have walked through the issue of divorce, acknowledging that all the way along. This is not how God wants us to be. And this is not my desire. But the reality of this situation is such that this cannot be. And so we as the church, our job is to step into those and love. There's this weird juxtaposition that we live in in our world today where we we live longing for community, right? It's why social media became such a thing. Right? We want to be known. We want to be connected. We want, to, you know, we want our, our connection and webbing to be greater. But while we want greater connection, we don't want meddling. Right? We don't want people to tell us what to do. We don't want people stepping into our lives. And we don't want people looking at us and speaking into certain things because we want to say, that's none of your business. And dear friends, I think one of the greatest things that we can do as Christians is just get over the fact that our story isn't our own story. And to invite other believers to step into our story. To step, allow people to step into our mess. To allow people to tell us when we're wrong. To allow people to point into us the reality of our hardness of heart if they see that welling up. Sometimes as a pastor, I ask people uh, uncomfortable questions in odd situations, right? Some of you that have been at my house over the last couple of years uh, have may have had me ask you the question while we're sitting talking about the Super Bowl or whatever's going on, right? Something inconsequential and we're drinking coffee. And I'll ask the question, so how's your marriage? And it just feels really personal, right? It's because I genuinely care. I want that aspect of your life because it has so much power and weight. Not just for you, but for your kids and for your family and for your neighbors and your co-workers. It exemplifies Christ in a way that nothing else can. And when the world simply tries to make marriage a contractual agreement between two individuals, and they're even trying to change that. <laughs> There's a guy in Japan that uh, within the last three years was legally married 
to his robot. Within the last five years, there was a man uh, that has, uh, for all five years, has been applying for and being denied, thankfully, but has been uh, articulately applying for a marriage license between himself and his horse. And we go, yeah, no. But why not? If it's not moored to anything, if it's not anchored in anything, if it's just left up to human will, why do we even have divorce? So we can count extra dependence on our taxes? What's the point of it? Jesus calls us to live something that the world doesn't actually value the way that God does. God valued it so much that it was a part of chapter 1 of His story of Revelation. And we have to acknowledge that if we're going to live this kind of way, if we're going to believe what Jesus believes, then we're going to stand in opposition to it, and we just need to be okay with that. Why? Because we love Jesus so much. And we want marriages to be as God made them to be. That He made man and woman in His own image. And for this reason shall a man leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Whatever your own story is, whether you come from a broken home, whether your marriage was broken, uh, whether you have this uh, tension of worldview around the subject of marriage, listen to the words of Jesus. Allow them to rest in your heart. And then whether you pursue marriage or whether you pursue singleness, we love the sanctity of marriage because God made it. And it's for our good and for His glory. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for marriage. And Lord, we know that not all of our lives in this room came about because of a marriage. But Lord, it doesn't negate the fact that You love marriage. God, we do pray for the marriages of our church. Um, We've seen Satan attacking over the years that we've been here. We've seen several marriages fail. We've seen the sin of Pornea as it's crept into both men and women's lives in this community. We've seen how it has destroyed marriages and destroyed families. God, there's so much confusion over all of it. Lord, help us to see the beauty of marriage. Lord, let those that You have called to live as single individuals, Lord, let them be champions of marriage. Not because it's idolized in their world, but simply because it is Your idea and they love You and they want to champion everything that's Yours. 
God, we pray that you would create a culture within our church that whether married or single, we would live in family and community with one another, spurring each other on, holding each other accountable, loving each other, walking through the sanctification process as we are followers of you. And so, God, we pray that um, we would do honest inward uh, evaluations. Lord, that the married couples within this church would even tonight look across the table or turn their head as they lay down and ask the, their spouse, how are we doing? And that, Lord, you would give your freedom in their lives to speak truth. That if healing needs to happen, if restoration needs to happen, then, Lord, let it happen. Lord, let there not be hardness of heart. We love you so much. It's your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've been blessed by the hearing of God's Word. Feel free to connect with us at www.galenabiblechurchak.com and subscribe to this podcast at iTunes or at galenamissions.podbean.com.